Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you some of our favorite stories from recent months. And what all these stories have in common is they turn around and look back on someone or something here in the Washington region. So, appropriately enough, we're calling today's show Looking Back. We'll turn back the clock with a woman who's seen a lot of Washington history in her 93 years. Tom the Huckster used to yell, strawberries, strawberries. We'll find out what construction crews have unearthed as they painstakingly restore a historic D.C. street. So we'll take out each and every stone, then we clean it up, restore it, then bring it back. And we'll meet a family that's preserving one member's memory through an unusual dinnertime tradition. You eat with your hands, and when you're done eating, you growl. First, though, we've all received startling news, but when public radio producer Steve Lichtai was 18, he received some news that was downright shocking. Like, I remember I get this news, you know, this this very specific news that everything that you were told in your life is now not true. This is a scene from Open Secret, a new documentary film Steve spent seven years making. You know, why does this matter? I mean, maybe it's stupid. Maybe I don't need to be worrying about it, you know? It's the mystery you have to figure out. It was a lie. And it was your life. (laughs) The news in question, the actual Open Secret, has to do with Steve's birth parents. He grew up not knowing who they were. To him, mom and dad were Mary Jane and Don Lichtai, an older couple who'd adopted him as a child and added him to their brood of eight biological children. Absolutely. My name's Steve. Steve. Yeah. What were your parents' names, Steve? Lichtai. L-I-C-K-T-E-I-G. Don Lichtai and Mary Jane. And they were married here in June of 1946. Here is St. Francis Xavier Church in southeast D.C. It was Mary Jane's lifelong church until she and Don moved to Kansas, much against her will. That's where Steve grew up. Steve lives in D.C. now and in the administrative office of St. Francis Xavier. A woman named Marion offers to find Don and Mary Jane's marriage records. That's, I can't believe you found that so fast. <laughs> it was in alphabetical order. Wow. That's nuts. We take the documents into the chapel, and on a dark wooden pew, Steve pages through the marriage agreement, Don and Mary Jane's baptism certificates, something called a prenuptial investigation. I think it was much stricter than, you know, Catholics getting married. I think there was a lot of making sure that uh, everything was, I was about to say everything was kosher, so to speak, but that's (laughs) not the right thing to say. But the thing is, not everything was kosher, so to speak, when it came to Steve's upbringing. Because Don and Mary Jane were actually Steve's grandparents. His birth mother was Joni, one of Don and Mary Jane's biological kids. Joni was 21 when she got pregnant after a fling with a much older man in Los Angeles. You open your documentary with a voiceover voice by you, and you say, my My name name is Steve. Steve. And And on on my family's family's farm farm in Kansas, Kansas, I found found out out everything everything I knew about about myself was a lie. When did you actually learn of this lie? Can you take us back to that moment and paint a picture of how it all happened? My friend Vance, who's in the film, said, I know who your mother is, your sister, Joni. And then my other friend, Alan, who was there, was like, yeah, I mean, I've known since I was in seventh grade. And Vance had known since he was, you know, like eight years old. And Alan says I just was very still and quiet and like introspective about it. That's one of those moments where people say, oh, when you're told something shocking, you sort of shut down or that's what happened because there's 
there's also a photo of me the next day at, gra- at graduation with my arms around my mom and dad and I'm like laughing and they're smiling. I mean, they don't know that I know. When did you tell Mary Jane and Don that you knew? A couple of months later, I was dating my high school girlfriend and they basically caught the two of us having sex. This was at home. We, we thought they were gone for a lot longer than they were. And um, it was a Saturday night and I remember the next morning I was asleep in my room, which was right next to our living room. And my mom turned on the TV really loud and it was a preacher preaching abstinence. And I walked out and I turned the TV down and I said, oh, very, very funny. I get it. Did you play this for Joni when she got pregnant? And my dad looked up from his easy chair, you know, and my mom was in the kitchen and she turned and looked at me. I said, you know, because I know everything. I know Joni is my mom. Did you not give her this lecture? And uh, my mom said, I have no idea what you're talking about. She just kept saying it over and over again. I don't know what you're talking about. And then my dad slammed his arm down on the chair and said, God damn it, will you just tell him? And then she still, she still denied it for just a brief moment. It's like, what? Tell him what? And then basically she said, yeah, okay, it's true. And then I played the typical teenage card and like stormed out of the house. And I tell you, we never talked about it again. So that's, that's where the open secret comes in. Everyone knew, except for your own family knew. People in your community knew. A teacher is interviewed in the film, some of your classmates, but the information never leaked. And then, is it Mr. Redeker? Is that Mr. how you Redeker. say? Mr. Redeker, the teacher, he says something in the film that kind of explained it, but still, he talked about the rituals and laws of the farm community, and he says, you just didn't violate them. Yeah, you just didn't violate them. And back then, this was, ni- you know, I was born in 1969, 1987 is when I graduated high school. And this is Kansas, and not backwards by any stretch, but it was unthinkable to meddle in another family's business. And, you know, my parents, my mom mostly, my dad, I think, knew everybody knew, but my mom really didn't think that people knew. I think she thought she kept it very well hidden. Before we move on, I have a million other questions, but you keep calling them my mom, my dad. Even after finding out the truth, you still call them mom, dad, and Joni is still Joni. Yeah. Don and Mary Jane raised me from an infant. And now I have a son. I have an 11-month-old son. It's really hard work. And I was the ninth kid that they raised. I would have to say, despite whatever they kept from me, they have earned mom and dad as a title. And what will your child call Joni, for example? Don't know yet. And I will leave this up to him, and I know I have a lot of influence over it, but I don't think I want my son calling her grandma. It may be um, biologically accurate or legally accurate or something along those lines, but it's not emotionally accurate. Speaking of Joni, the scenes with you and her are, are riveting. There's one where she's baking and you're asking her questions and she's kind of losing herself in the recipe as if maybe she doesn't want to answer. So then you went back to Emporia and started school. Yeah. But you didn't know you were pregnant. Oh, God, no. But you know, you know, I knew something wasn't right. I really did know. Just a second. Wind mixed, add baking powder and two tablespoons of flour. Really, really interesting scenes and at one point you ask her, what, what were, were you, you most, most afraid, afraid of? of? And she answers, Mom. Can you talk some more about that fear? What was it about Mary Jane that you think made Joni so frightened? Well, the stories I remember, and I have some recollection of this even as a child myself, but it wasn't as severe, is that she was volatile. My mom had truly diagnosed mental issues. She had severe depression. Uh, even, I'd venture to say there was probably issues of being bipolar. And I think when Joni found out that she was pregnant, this wasn't going to be a mom is going to say, Joni, just come home and we'll take care of everything. You don't worry about it. So I understand that 
she tried to hide it for a while and tried to figure out what she was going to do. And all of her plans were basically foiled by my mother, who stepped in and said, this is what we're going to do. What's your relationship like now with Joni? At this very moment, as we talk, it's kind of non-existent. She, well, she didn't like the film. She didn't feel that she was portrayed in the right light. And of course, I completely and utterly disagree. And everybody who has seen it from the family and people know her are like, you captured her perfectly. But nobody wants to see that about themselves. Because Joni's good and bad in that film. And she says some really awful things about my mother in that film. She calls her a con artist at one point. Calls her a con artist. Um, wishes that she would just die and get it over with. But I think when she saw the film and heard herself saying that, she was like, oh my God, what kind of person am I? Why would I say that about my own mother? Basically, what I've told myself, I'm just going to give her time to get over it. The reason I did the film was not obviously for fame or glory or money because none of those things exist. Um, it was a chance to let my family, each person in the family, tell the story without anybody trying to refute them. I respectfully set up a camera and formally said, tell me the story of being forced to keep a secret about something that you didn't want to keep a secret about. And I learned, that it was a long learning experience, but I learned that there's a lot of power, and this is going to sound totally cliche, there's a lot of power in telling the truth. And I learned empathy and sympathy both, I think. But I totally understand my parents now. And I totally understand Joni. And I don't know what I would have done in the same situation. I know what I would like them to have done, but I don't know what I would have done. And I know how hard it was. So there's a reason why you, you really need to, to, to look deeply into why things are and the why people behave the way they do and come out on the other side with a deeper understanding of not only them, but of yourself. And that's what happened here. Steve Lichtai is the director of Open Secret. He'll be taking his film on the road this fall with a stop at the Kansas International Film Festival the first week of October. For more information about Open Secret and to see a trailer, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from family secrets to a tale whose contours are supposedly well-known, that of Orville and Wilbur Wright and their massive successes in building and flying the world's first successful airplane. But there's a D.C. man who played a massive role in helping the Wrights breach the boundaries of earth and sky, a man whose name is not very well-known at all. Emily Friedman sorted through 100 years of D.C. history to bring us the tale of this unsung hero of early aviation. Yep. Al Welsh. Hi, Emily. Hi. So, Al Welsh, tell us more about Al Welsh. Al Welsh was an immigrant from Russia. He was Jewish, and his name originally was Libel Welsher. He lived in southwest D.C. and worked as a bookkeeper and a part-time gym teacher. So how did a Russian immigrant living in D.C. get hooked up with the Wright brothers? It all began when Orville Wright came to D.C. to show off their plane. They were looking for customers, and who better to sell to than the U.S. government? There were no airports at the time, because... This was the first plane, so the testing ground was a big grassy knoll at Fort Myer. It was right adjacent to Arlington Cemetery. This is Paul Glenshaw. He's an airplane history fanatic. So you would have heard the noise of the engine quite far away. 
And they actually handed out tickets and thousands of people would come. In fact, one day, Congress shut down and all tromped across the Potomac to come see him fly. Al Welsh was one of the faces in the crowd. And like everyone else watching, he found these Wright airplane flights amazing. They are these magnificent creatures when they actually leave the ground. They're very big and the wings are bright white and they move very slowly. But wait. It isn't like Al Welsh had a a background in mechanics, right? You said he was a a gym teacher? Right, but the way Paul Glenshaw sees it. There was something about the airplane that compelled him to change everything. Change everything. That sounds dramatic. It was, actually. When the Wright plane was sold to the U.S. government and Orville headed back to the Midwest to kickstart production, Al Welsh was right behind him. He, he chased them all the way to Dayton, Ohio, where they lived, and approached them about becoming a pilot or joining them, just, just being part of what they were doing. Part of the Wright brothers' business was a school, and they needed flight instructors. But Welsh was turned away. They were looking for a certain type of guy. Elegant, daring. A lot of them had a background in automobile racing, or they were, you know, wealthy sportsman types. Al Welsh was none of those things. But Welsh stayed in Dayton and kept knocking on their door. What we know is that he persisted, and whatever it is that he said to the Wright brothers worked. I think it was a totally huge deal that as a Jew, he was admitted to the Wright Brothers Training School and became a pilot. Laura Applebaum is the executive director of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington. It's kind of unbelievable. You're living in a shtetl in Russia, and then you're flying a plane with Wright Brothers. You know, it's, it's amazing. So Welsh and the other birdmen, as they were known, learn to fly. There's no proper fuselage or a cockpit. There's just a little bench on, on the wing. Oh, that's crazy. That's really different from today's airplanes, I'm assuming, then. No seatbelts or...? No, no seatbelts. And when you see these planes now, it is so hard to believe that anyone would have ever gotten on one of them. And Welsh just, he delivered. He was reliable. He was safe. You see a mastery of the airplane and no need at all to hot dog it, to put on a show. Because they trusted him, the Wrights had Welsh train their most important students, especially those first few Army officers to come through their flight school. A young lieutenant named Henry Arnold, who later became more famously known by his nickname, Hap Arnold, who became the five-star general who led the Air Forces during World War II. Two years passed, and it was time to upgrade the planes used by the U.S. government. The Wrights trained Welsh on the new plane and then sent him over to College Park Airfield to demonstrate it for the military. He didn't know it then, but he'd soon be taking his last flight. Welsh left the ground and circled out away from the field at about a half mile. And he turned and came back towards the field. And as he did, he dove, apparently at a pretty steep angle, to gain speed so that as he made this climb, he'd have the speed that he needed. And as he pulled out of the dive, the wing tips came up and almost touched. The plane fell straight down to the ground. And in those days, they didn't wear helmets, they didn't wear parachutes. The airplane was completely demolished. Oh, wow. So that's how he died? That's how he died. His body was taken from College Park to his parents' home in Southwest, and the family actually delayed the funeral so Orville Wright and his sister Catherine could come in from Ohio. And this is pretty remarkable since the Wrights, by most accounts, really didn't have friends. But they loved Welsh, and actually, Orville was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. Nowadays, you know, we travel so much that flying can really seem, like, tedious. 
But when you think about the people who took those first steps toward figuring out what flight is and how to do it, it's amazing. I know. There were no pilots before the Wright brothers. It just didn't exist. You had to have a lot of guts to get on one of these planes. And I guess you had to be willing to sacrifice everything. So when it all comes down to it, Al Welsh really was a daredevil after all. Yeah, and the world's first Jewish aviator. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing his tale, Emily. You're welcome. Our thanks to the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington for cluing us in to the story of Al Welsh. And you can check out the College Park Aviation Museum's exhibit about Al Welsh for a few more weeks. It's on display until September 3rd. for a quick break, but in just a minute, a local family gets wild and remembers a loved one who's now gone. For me personally, it's really wonderful to have them carry it on because we wasn't here, so it's a piece of their grandfather that they never knew. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we are looking back playing stories from the Metro Connection archives that all look back in one way or another as they glance back at the history of people and places here in the D.C. region. And we're going to kick off this part of the show with a rather personal look back as we revisit the Capitol Hill of nearly a century ago with this woman. I was born January 6, 1919. And at that point, everybody just flops over <laughs> If it had been born in the 1920s, it would be different. 1919 puts you in all different category. <laughs> and this 93-year-old Washingtonian is definitely in a whole different category. Her name is Mary Z. Gray. And I always have to have the Z in there because there's so many Mary Grays. We have to be differentiated from the, the usual Mary Grace. Aside from that middle Z, which is short for the maiden name, Zerhurst, this Mary Gray has differentiated herself in a number of ways. Her writing first appeared in the Washington Post in 1940. She became a speechwriter for the Kennedy-Johnson White House in 1963. And now she's written a nonfiction book about her childhood and family. It's called 301 East Capitol, Tales from the Heart of the Hill. And in it, she recounts her memories growing up at 301 East Capitol Street in the 1920s and 30s. Nowadays, Mary lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I recently paid her a visit. And 301 East Capitol houses the Folger Shakespeare Library's Haskell Center. But as Mary remembers with uncanny clarity, the upstairs of 301 once housed her family, of course, while the downstairs housed her family's fourth-generation funeral parlor business. In fact, Mary says at least five generations of her family had lived within 10 blocks of one another on Capitol Hill starting in 1840. In the introduction to your book, you talk about two different worlds on Capitol Hill. You, you quote Alexander Hamilton, and you talk about the world where the people rule, and you talk about the one where the people live. 
What was it like for you growing up in a place where those two worlds coexisted? Well, it was a great privilege. We were literally connected to the capital by looking out, and you couldn't miss it. But also, it became part of, of my life, just like a you know a tree with lovely birds in it or something right outside your window. It becomes part of your life, especially looking to see if the, the Tholos light was on. The Tholos is a light that a lot of people don't notice. There's always a light on the Capitol Dome at night, but there's a light that somebody has to turn on manually, and it means that Congress, one or both houses, is in session after dark. And the first thing I learned to say was, now I lay me down to sleep, and the second thing was, they're in session. And then I would tell the family they were in session. <laughs> and so I got very politically oriented young. But it really was the capital and the idea that Alexander Hamilton said, here the people rule. And for the Capitol Hill that we lived on, shared with this noble building, was here the people live. The Capitol Hill was home. Can you paint a picture of the Capitol Hill of your childhood? I, reading about all these old institutions in your book, like Grubbs Pharmacy, Cheryl's Bakery and Restaurant, McPhee's Men's Haberdashery. Can you illustrate for us what things looked like, what they sounded like? A lot happened on the streets. For instance, there was a, a man who came around every night and turned the gas lights on, on A Street. He didn't come on East Capitol Street. Apparently there was an electric system on East Capitol. And the boys, newsboys, used to stand on the corner and yell the headlines. Uh, Tom the Huckster, who had a, a cart that was drawn by a horse, and Tom the Huckster used to yell, Strawberries! And he'd kind of <laughs> sing it. Strawberries! and uh, watermelon, watermelon, fresh off the vine. And people used to run out the front doors and get all excited because it was time for strawberries, for instance. And then there was the, the pony. This man who owned him used to bring him, and that sound would go up. Ponies here! And everybody would run out and take stupid-looking pictures. This is an awful picture of me in an incredible bonnet sitting on this pony. The pony never moved. It would just sit there. And then a little organ an organ grinder with a little tiny monkey. It was just adorable. And he would grind away, come back to Sorrento or some battalion. The monkey didn't grind. The <laughs> organ <laughs> is owner. It's kind of um, strange to be 93, you know, that <laughs> when you realize that you can tell about something that happened almost 100 years ago and you remember it, that gives me the creeps. <laughs> um, one of my favorite chapters in the book is a story about you and a mysterious man called Mr. President. Can you tell us that story? I love that story. Thank you. <laughs> well, our minister was Mr. Pettis. This is St. Mark's Episcopal Church. 
he was a good friend of ours, and he offered to take me somewhere. I was only five. I can see my boots, red boots, like Wellington's. But anyway, he was to take me somewhere, and it was something important. But it was a very nasty day. It was snowing and sleeting. This was in January. And Mr. Pettis and I took the streetcar downtown. So we went inside the building, and I can remember this, because I was looking down, so I didn't see much above me. And there was a red carpet. We stopped at a certain place in this red carpet. And there was a man who was on the other side of the carpet. And he called our minister, Billy. And our minister called him Mr. President. And that didn't ring a bell with me. (laughs) Nothing. But we got home, and everybody wanted to know what happened, what he said, because it was Calvin Coolidge's first New Year's Day reception, I found out later. (laughs) Well, Mary Zegray, you have some amazing memories. Well, don't ask me what we had for lunch yesterday. Mary Z. Gray is the author of 301 East Capitol, Tales from the Heart of the Hill, published by Overbeck History Press. For more information and to see photos of Mary as a young girl in Capitol Hill, including that shot of her in that big bonnet on the pony that never moved, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Someday we'll build a home on a hilltop high. You and I, shiny and new, a cottage that too can fill, and we'll be pleased to be called the folks who live on the Our next story is about a D.C. family that remembers its past by preserving a most distinctive dinnertime tradition. Decades ago, John Wiebenson decided to take over Friday night dinner for his three sons. But cooking wasn't his strong suit, so he stuck to what he knew, steak and potatoes. And as a special treat, he let his children act like little cavemen. Thus began Wild Man Night, and as Jessica Gould tells us, it's a tradition that continues today. It's Friday night at the Wiebenson house. The steak is sizzling, the potatoes are baking, and things are about to get a little bit wild. Eight-year-old Tristan Wiebenson explains. So you eat with your hands, you make a fire, and when you're done eating, you growl. Tristan's grandmother, Abigail, says Wild Man Night began years ago, back when her three sons were small, and she had her hands full as a working mom. I was really tired. I had three children and a full-time job, and it was the end of the week, and I was done. Abigail says that's when her husband, John Wiebenson, or Weeb for short, offered to take over. He was not a cook. He had a very limited menu that he could do. He would bring five shrimp. He would get steak, he would get five baked potatoes, and he would get three comic books. He hid the comic books, which the children would find as part of a pre-dinner scavenger hunt. Then they would sit down to eat. Utensils were purely optional. 
he would pour sparkling cider into the glasses, and then he would propose a toast, and the toast would be to an ancestor. But we wouldn't just clink glasses, we would growl. Weep Sen John says he was about 10 years old when Wild Man Night began. I think it was just a great kind of moment to sort of pull us all together. And John says Wild Man Night was just one of the ways we brought excitement and whimsy into the boys' everyday lives. And it was just Saturdays that included Metro adventures in which we would get on the Metro and kind of pick a stop and just ride the Metro and see where it took us. He even remodeled the family's DuPont Circle row house, transforming it into a veritable jungle gym of wooden ladders and secret passageways. Abigail says it was just Weeb's way to make life better for his children and for everyone. He was always a man who believed in the underdog. As an architect, Weeb did a lot of pro bono work for local schools and charities. He was especially devoted to Martha's Table, a nonprofit that provides food, clothing, and educational opportunities to low-income families. In the fall of 2003, Weeb was helping out with improvements there when tragedy struck. He had uh, renovated several of the buildings there on 14th Street, and this was the last. The building had been a car repair shop, but he hoped to make it into a space for after-school programs. First, he had to clean out the basement— all of the things that people had taken out of the cars, the oil and the toxic things, they'd thrown into the basement. And so he had gotten gallons and gallons of that stuff taken out. And he went down to just check it again, and the toxicity had come back, and he was asphyxiated. It was devastating for the family. But if Weeb had taught them anything, it was to embrace life and enjoy the moments they had together. So several months later, when Weeb's son Derek got married, the family decided to host a wild man dinner for the guests. Now, John Weebinson carries on the tradition with his sons, Tristan and Oliver, who's six. I hope they kind of can understand that, you know, I think it's good to be a little crazy, know there's a time for that, and and know there's a way to do it that still is part of the family and still is part of, you know, a great tradition. So John hides the comic books. All right, start walking. Warm, warm. Hot, on fire! Then the boys sit down to eat. They smash the potatoes with the palms of their hands and tear the meat with their teeth. Finally, when only empty potato skins and gristle are left, John makes a toast. To, to my dad, John Wimmonson, Weeb, who started this and brought this sort of wonderful tradition that I'm very happy to pass on to Tristan and Oliver and hope that they continue it in their own wild ways. And on the count of three, one, two, Three. The boys lift their glasses of sparkling cider and growl <laughs> for their grandfather. I'm Jessica Gould. Do you have a special family tradition? If so, we want to hear about it. Send an email to metro at wamu.org. After the break, we continue our Looking Back show by looking way back. And I mean like way back, way, way back. 500 million years, not just a few years. And the nautiloids came, and then many people are familiar with ammonites that have some similarity in the shape. 
They came around 400 million years ago. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And this week we're plunging into our archives and looking back on stories that, well, that look back. We've heard a nonagenarian's memories of childhood on Capitol Hill. We celebrated one of the first pilots to break the bounds between Earth and sky. And in just a bit, we'll do some digging in Georgetown to take a look at history in that storied neighborhood. But first, we'll talk about some Washington neighborhoods that no longer exist. We'll find out more on the location. Where Kim Bender, author of the blog The Location, explores the intriguing stories of Washington's places, people, and culture. And the Northwest Washington location where Kim and I met up a few months back. Hello. Hello. Right on 13th and R. Doesn't just have an intriguing story. I was hoping you would say, Welcome to Hell's Bottom. Welcome to Hell's Bottom. <laughs> it has an intriguing name. Why, thank you. It's good to be here. Can, can you say it's good to be in Hell's Bottom? It's I don't know. Fair. Sure. Especially now, in 2012. It's no longer quite as hellish or bottomish. No. <laughs> it's a quite a lovely neighborhood right now. And yet back in the Civil War era, when Hell's Bottom got its name, the place was anything but lovely. Hell's Bottom was an area from 7th to 14th Street Northwest and from O to Boundary. Boundary was what Florida Avenue was called. It was the edge of the city at the time. And it was just filled with really poor conditions, shanties and houses crowded with people and disease. Not to mention a ton of liquor and crime. But Hell's Bottom wasn't the only part of D.C. that was a mess back then. And the other neighborhood names Kim dug up from a Washington Post map circa 1877 reflect that. We have my personal favorite, Bloodfield, which is in Southwest. They called it South Washington in the newspaper. Bloody Hill. And then not on here is Murder Bay, which we, we can also talk about. So all of these names, to me, they speak to uh, Washington of days of yore. That was, I don't know how how you would say this, pretty rough, yeah. (laughs) Washington was rough before, during, and after the Civil War. And in 1902, the Washington Post interviewed a government official. Um, I think he was probably a cop from the way he describes things. But he says, Washington passed through its period of lawlessness and disorder fully as bad, if not worse, than that which prevailed in Cripple Creek, Colorado or Tombstone, Arizona. So between 1860 and 1870, the population doubled here. It went from 75,000 people to 150,000. So you can imagine the strain on the city's resources. The police force was reorganized in 1860, and the cops who were on the beats in these different places would only go in pairs. They were afraid to go by themselves, and it seemed like there was an all-out war between the people who lived in these neighborhoods and the police. So the police would arrest somebody, that person would fight back, somebody would end up dead, somebody might end up very injured. It was just chaos, it sounds like. Yeah. I actually read, when I was doing research about a different story, I saw um, that this one senator, Senator Stewart, was totally opposed to bringing a World's Fair here. He said, we are not a mature enough city to allow people in here. Like We need to do a lot of work on ourselves. And people were very angry, but I think he had a point. One neighborhood we haven't really talked about very much is Murder Bay. Where was Murder Bay? Murder Bay was east of the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. There were theaters and saloons and brothels and um, 
a lot of crime. Was it kind of like a red light district? It was like a red light district. Then we also have other neighborhoods that aren't quite as notorious or dangerous, but just have names that we don't use anymore. Can you share some of those names? Cowtown is a neighborhood north of Hell's Bottom, so north of where we are, north of U Street and west of 7th. The island, which is a swath of land south of the mall, it was called that because it was cut off from mainland D.C. with the canals and the rivers surrounding it. And then we have Whitechapel, which was described as a dirty alley between 24th and 25th Streets and M and N Streets Northwest. During the 1880s, there was an almost constant warfare there between the residents and the police. So, so as we saw the city improve, granted, Washington has had its rough times. We know, of course, the riots were a horrible time for the city and following that, the cleanup, and then there were other times where the city dealt with its share of problems. But after this whole period that we're talking about with these particular names, what led the city on a straighter path? Well, I think Boss Shepherd came into power to make public improvements at the end of the 19th century. I think it had just gotten to a point where the city needed to modernize. And, you know, he closed up Washington City Canal we talked about last time. They created modernized sewer systems. They paved roads. At that point, the rest of the world was improving. They were probably trying to do the same. Catch up. Catch up. Um, Land was regraded. Gas lights were put up. Trees were planted. It was trying to make D.C. less of a backwater and more of a real city. It was the nation's capital, after all. It was the nation's capital. Once the roads were paved and there were amenities, then the money came and sort of changed other parts of the city. It's interesting, though, because not all parts of the city clearly changed the same way or at the same rate. No, it was the fashionable places that changed. The growth moved northwest, but once upon a time, it was still pretty bad. I don't think you would have wanted to walk through Hell's Bottom. Even the people who lived there felt like they were fighting for their lives. That's what one resident said, one man who was quoted in 1900. I think he was reminiscing about his life in Hell's Bottom 30 or 40 years earlier. And he said... A man had to fight whenever he went into the bottom. Kim Bender writes the blog The Location for a link to Kim's article about old neighborhood names. And to take a look at that 1877 map, visit our website, metroconnection.org. I want to sink to the bottom with you. I want to sink to the bottom with you. The ocean is big and blue. I just want to sink... We'll head now to a neighborhood whose name might be a bit more familiar to you, Georgetown. That's where city workers spent much of this year rebuilding two streets that harken back to a very different time in D.C. And that's the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. If you've ever driven on O or P Street in Georgetown, you might have wondered about their bumpy cobblestones and obsolete trolley tracks. These features are reminders of a rich history in the area. And as Martin DeCaro tells us, that history is being remembered and preserved, one stone at a time. It's a cacophony of construction. Since March last year, sweat-stained workers using hammers, shovels, circular saws, and backhoes have been putting O and P streets back together, piece by piece. 
in a swirl of dust and noise, construction workers are using what's called a plate tamper, a very loud machine that levels out the roadway. Other workers put the old stones down in place, then they shovel sand and gravel over them, and the plate tamper flattens it out. We're reusing as much of the old material as absolutely possible. Dara Ward is a spokeswoman for the O and P Street project. The granite stones in these streets were first laid down in the late 19th century, and each one in about a mile and a half of roadway was dug up. What was beneath them was the reason why the district decided to rebuild the streets. The substructure that was used back then was considerably different than the substructure that's used now. And it, over time, the water from rain and, and runoff really just caused that substructure to degrade, causing major potholes and anomalies in the road shape and structure. So the stones themselves weren't necessarily the problem. Ramesh Mishanani is the O&P Street project manager at the District Department of Transportation. He says 90% of the stones were in good enough shape to be reused. So we'll take out each and every stone, make sure it's not damaged, then we clean it up, restore it, then bring it back. The granite stones aren't the only historic aspect of these streets that'll be preserved. The trolley tracks that run through O&P were last used in 1960, but they'll be a feature of the renovated roadways as well. This community decided that they wanted to preserve the historic nature of the area. This is a unique system um, within the United States. There's one remaining example of this in the world, and it's in London. The community said, this is what we want. So now we're on P Street the finished product. It's a lot less noisy over here. (laughs) It is. We still have one block on P Street that we're working on, which is the 3200 block closest to Wisconsin, Um, but the 33 and 3400 blocks are both done. I could see when the cars pass over that they're not going ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom over old stones. Exactly. Much less chance of bottoming out now. (laughs) This sound is what drivers in this neighborhood have been waiting for. Tires roll smoothly over granite and gravel. The streetcar tracks now even with the roadway. Resident Stephen Martin says it looks great. This neighborhood used to rip up my tires, and I'm looking forward to not having to buy tires every year because the trolley car tracks were uneven and there were pieces of jagged metal sticking up. It's even quieter in the Peabody Room of the Public Library in Georgetown, the domain of Jerry McCoy, a special collections librarian and historic preservationist. He greeted me with a photo. This is a photograph that was taken in 1893. Uh, It's looking north up Wisconsin Avenue at the corner of O Street, and this is one of the horse-drawn streetcars belonging to the Metropolitan Railroad Company coming out onto Wisconsin Avenue. That's right. D.C.'s first streetcars were pulled by horses. The tracks reached Georgetown in 1872. By 1892, the streetcars were powered by underground electric cables. The fare was a nickel. That nickel fare lasted for decades and decades, and then you know, it went up to seven cents and people threw a fit. The streetcar system was ended so the streets could be opened up to cars and buses, which were thought to be cheaper to operate than trolleys. While streetcars are making a comeback in other parts of D.C., the O and P Street tracks are only for show, but McCoy says they're important nonetheless. George town isn't only about, you know, 18th century colonial America. There's really some important 20th century and 19th century history embodied here. And I just think it's great that these tracks are being preserved. And now residents just have to step outside their front doors to imagine what the neighborhood looked like when horses pulled the trolleys down O and P. I'm Martin DeCaro.
So, okay, on today's Looking Back show, we've gone back to the Capitol Hill of the 1930s. We've met an aviation hero of the early 1900s. And we've revisited the late 1800s in Georgetown. Well, our final story today takes us even further back into the past, our evolutionary past. Environment reporter Sabri Benashur brings us all the Darwinian details. In a dark tank at the National Zoo, some very odd creatures are clinging to the rocky walls. They look like a cross between a squid and a snail. These are chambered nautilus. They're quite incredible animals. Alan Peters is curator of invertebrates. Well, it has a spiral shell. The tentacles are right in the front. And nautilus have been noted as a living fossil, an animal that's living now. And its body shape, its body form is very similar to its ancestors that lived a very, very long time ago. In the case of Nautilus, it's over 500 million years ago. Half a billion years, and it's still around. And if you look at its family tree, the tree is massive, it's hulking. And the nautiloids are just a small, leafy green branch. But the tree is mostly dead. Many people are familiar with ammonites that have some similarity in the shape. There were an incredible number. I mean, it's beautiful just to look at an array of all the different designs. There's just hundreds and thousands of different shapes. They came and went. Living fossils are unique not just because they haven't changed a lot, but also because they've survived at all. Alex Pyron is a professor of biology at George Washington University. When we look at the species we have today, we have the estimates range up into the millions, and we don't really know how many there are. But what we do know is that 99.9% of all species that have ever existed have gone extinct. So that could be as many as 50 billion species. When you look at a modern family tree, it looks as if things are branching, branching, branching. But pruning, extinction, is right there behind it, constantly nipping, nipping, nipping at its heels. It's called the Red Queen Hypothesis. It's the idea coming from Through the Looking Glass, the Alice in Wonderland book, that you have to run as fast as you can just to stay in one place and that anything that trips you up will cause you to fall behind. So at any given time, every single species is in a constant race for survival and a constant struggle just to get by, just to reproduce to the next generation. And you have a constant, completely random set of mutations that arise that might give them beneficial adaptations, but the same thing is happening in all of the other creatures in the environment, and the environment is changing too. So maybe the temperature changes or a new creature with a snazzy new adaptation comes in and pushes you and your whole branch on the family tree of life aside. All of a sudden, basically, they fall behind this struggle, and they get trampled underfoot. So some other group is now king of the hill. Pyron says this happened with snakes. About 60 million years ago, some lucky snakes evolved venom through small modifications to proteins and saliva. 60 million years later, they've blown other snake groups out of the water in terms of diversity. So if survival is all about change, how have living fossils such as the nautilus at the National Zoo or horseshoe crabs or coelacanths, how they hung on for so long? Christopher Wills is a biologist and author of the book The Darwinian Tourist. Living fossils usually are beautifully adapted to a particular ecological niche. Ecological niches, of course, come and go. But there are some parts of the world that really haven't changed very much for long periods of time. And that has allowed certain species to be able to persist. But that makes them vulnerable, too. If that niche changes, like it has for just about everything else in the world, they could be goners. The organisms that are best able to survive these big changes are going to be the generalist organisms that can 
utilize a variety of different ecological niches. Think roaches or rats. But if everything else is destined to fade away or evolve into something else, what about us? Humans are a sort of a different case, though. I, I kind of hate to stick my neck out on this uh, because everyone assumes that we're going to blow ourselves up or uh, flood the entire planet or something. Uh, I, I think that, first of all, hopefully we'll be smart enough to be able to avoid those fates. Second, that our species is clever enough to be able to adapt. And we are, of course, able to create our own environment uh, to a large extent. So maybe the rules have changed a little bit here. So maybe we'll work things out too, just like the venomous snakes and the roaches. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Friedman, Sabri Benashore, Jessica Gould, and Martin DeCaro. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Thanks as always to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our theme for the location, Turn Your Face, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or just find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a Metro Connection favorite from earlier this year, Suburbia. We'll take a tour through D.C.'s original streetcar suburbs and investigate just how we should define the burbs in our sprawling region. Plus, could the popular bike share program work in the more far-flung corners of suburbia? I know from watching the cycling program in Washington just explode. So I I don't know why it wouldn't work here. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.